Hopefully you all have your notes and we'll realize that we're going to continue our examination of what is commonly referred to as the fifth antithesis in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, these are a number of contrasts that Jesus makes comparing his true teaching of Scripture with the distortions of the scribes and Pharisees. They usually begin with, you have heard it said, but I say to you, or something along those lines. And uh, as we saw last week, this antithesis itself is found in verse 38 and the first part of verse 39 of Matthew 5. But it's followed by four brief sort of mini illustrations beginning in the last part of verse 49 in which Jesus gives examples or illustrations of what he's saying, how it might look in practice in that first century world. And we're going to focus our attention on these four illustrations this morning. But, of course, we've got to back up and begin reading in verse 38, so we'll know what they're illustrations of, right? So, beginning in Matthew 5, verse 38, our Lord Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And then he starts to give four examples of the kind of thing he means. And remember, we saw last week, he has in the larger context the idea of his followers testifying to their faith in him, being persecuted because of it, right? But seeking to shine as lights in the world so that others may see their good works and glorify their Father in heaven. So what he's dealing with here is primarily situations in which uh, for our faith as Christians, we're being persecuted. And the evil person in mind is the person who's mistreating us in some way. That seems to be in the larger context what he has in mind. And remember we saw last week that he doesn't mean that you don't resist evil ever. We looked at lots of examples of how Jesus and the apostles constantly resisted evil. But when it came to times where they were suffering for their faith, they did not resist. And so we'll see more of that today in some of our examples that we'll look at. But I wanted to preface it with a reminder of some of what we looked at last week so that you understand where I'm headed this week, right? So beginning in verse 38 again, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But, here's the first illustration, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. The second illustration, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. The third illustration, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. And then the fourth and final sort of mini illustration or example is in verse 42. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. These are intended clearly to be examples of what he means by not resisting the evil person. Now, we'll try to unpack these a little bit more this morning. But first, as always, I feel a desperate need to pray. Uh, Holy Father, uh, I can't imagine teaching without uh, praying for your guidance and the filling of your Holy Spirit for every believer in this room that we might understand what it is that you desire to say to us through your word this morning. 
I pray that you'd make me and my brothers and sisters in Christ and any here, even who do not yet know you, good hearers of the word through the work of your Holy Spirit, that we would take in the truth that comes from our Lord Jesus and that we would seek to faithfully live it out, that we would leave here with a deeper desire to be more like him, to better magnify him as our Lord and Savior in this world that's lost and dying and literally going to hell. We need your grace, Lord, for this, and we ask for it. In the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, You recall those of you who were here last week, and uh, those of you who weren't, I'll give you an example of what I mean here in a moment, but uh, we saw that our Lord Jesus' teaching in the first part of this passage, where he laid out this antithesis, uh, actually reflects the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures about not taking vengeance or not retaliating by taking the law into our own hands. In fact, we looked at the Old Testament text that talked about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and those texts were specifically for use by magistrates and judges for judging things. They weren't ever intended to be taken as personal obligations to some sort of retaliation. In fact, we saw last week that the actual laws were intended to limit vengeance that people might be tempted to take, right? You can't kill somebody because he poked your eye out. It's an eye for an eye, right? A tooth for a tooth. So these laws were actually intended to be merciful and to limit vengeance and to put justice in the hands of the magistrates in Israel and not something we should take upon ourselves. But apparently, the scribes and Pharisees, as we saw last week, were kind of taking it out of context and using it as an excuse to be vengeful and to retaliate at times. At least that's the way Jesus understood them as misusing it, hence the way he gets, brings it to the individual level in his response when he says, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. He's talking about the individual thing, so that means individual relationships, not what magistrates do, in response to what they taught, which means that's what they were talking about in his mind, right? So with all that in, in our minds now, I'll give you one example of the teaching we reviewed from Solomon in the book of Proverbs last week to show you that even in the Old Testament, it taught that you shouldn't take vengeance. Um, in Proverbs 20, 22, Solomon said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. And as we considered that text last week, we were reminded that uh, to think that we have to take vengeance on ourselves is to really not trust God and his own justice. We think we can take justice in our own hands. Usually that means that we think God won't do it right. He needs our help, right? And, but Solomon knows this, and he says, no, wait, wait for the Lord. Now, as we approach the rest of the passage this morning here in Matthew 5, in which our Lord offers these four illustrations of how to apply his teaching, I think it would be good to consider yet one more Old Testament passage that I think sets forth a principle that is reflected here in our Lord Jesus' teaching, in, if you take it in its larger context. And that comes from Proverbs 25, in which a very interesting metaphor is used uh, that is sometimes taken incorrectly by people. In Proverbs 25, 
uh, verses 21 and 22, Solomon writes, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. Uh, This is a way of saying love your enemies, which Jesus will also teach in the Sermon on the Mount, which is also found in the Old Testament, right? Again, Jesus is not teaching anything new in his response to the scribes and Pharisees. He's actually teaching what the Old Testament scriptures taught and which they were ignoring, right? If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Why? Well, for so you will heat coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, some people take this as heaping coals of fire, getting back at him. Well, the preceding verse makes it clear that that's not what it's about. It's actually showing love that you're trying to do. So whatever this heaping coals of fire is, it's a loving thing for the good of the person, your enemy. It's not a bad thing. It certainly isn't retaliation, which Solomon has already said you're not supposed to do, right? I mean, it's not retaliation to give your enemy water if he's thirsty. That's kindness, it's love, it's mercy. I think for the precise meaning of the teaching, the ESV study Bible notes are actually right on target. That's the way I understand it. Here's what the ESV study Bible notes assert, and I think it's a pretty good summary. They write, although interpreters differ about the meaning of the metaphor of heaping burning coals on the enemy's head, it is likely an image for leading him to repentance or shame suggesting that he will feel inward burning pangs of guilt for his wrongdoing. In any case, the message is clearly to repay evil with good. The image of burning coals does not imply something that harms the enemy because it further explains the bread and the drink in verse 21, which do him good. And also because Proverbs forbids taking personal vengeance, which we just read in Proverbs 20, 22, Finally, the Lord will reward you, at the end of verse 22, implies a good result from these burning coals, which is most consistent with leading the person to repentance. I think this understanding certainly uh, makes the best sense of this proverb, but I think it also seems to fit nicely with our Lord Jesus' thinking in the larger context of today's text in which he has emphatically admonished us in our response to those who harm us in the world and as we live out our Christian faith in the world, in verse 16 of chapter 5, to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, however they treat us, what we do to them is loving and good with what intention? To to lead them to repentance. That's exactly what it was teaching In Proverbs 25. So what Jesus is saying here, I'm arguing, is fully in line with Old Testament teaching. It's not new. It sounds new to people who don't know the Old Testament teaching. Sounded new, no doubt, to a lot of people who heard it in Jesus' day because they'd been mistaught or badly taught by the scribes and Pharisees. But what Jesus is saying is what the scriptures had always said. At any rate, I think it's safe to say that whatever else Jesus may have been thinking when he gave these four illustrations that we're about to consider, he definitely wanted our actions to be directed toward the repentance and salvation of those who wrong us. That's his intention in this context. 
that we, through our good works, lead others to glorify our Father in heaven, which means leading them to repentance and salvation. That's our hope. Every time someone mistreats us and we don't retaliate. That's what's driving us. Love for them. Wanting them to find the same salvation that we have in Christ. So we, when we're mistreated for our faith, we see that as an opportunity to do good. An opportunity to be more like Christ. We don't see it as a bad thing necessarily because through Christ, our view of the whole situation is transformed. With all this in mind, we we get ready for illustration number one. And that's in the last part of verse 39. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now most commentaries that you will read will probably make the same point about the rabbinic teaching in those days and how insulting it was to slap someone with the back of your hand. I think Kent Hughes is helpful when, when he asked the question, what is Jesus describing here? And then answers, contrary to what we might think, he is not describing just a physical attack, but rather a very traditional calculated insult. Notice that Jesus specifically, specifically excuse me, mentions the right cheek which tells us that he's describing a backhanded slap, since most people are right-handed. This is surely what Jesus had in mind. According to rabbinic law, to hit someone with the back of the hand was twice as insulting as hitting him with the flat of the hand. The back of the hand meant calculated contempt, withering disdain. It meant that you were scorned as inconsequential and nothing. Well, that gets at the heart of, I think, what the intentions of such slaps were in those days. In other words, the person's not just hitting you because he's mad or something. The person's hitting you in order to scorn you, right? In order to humiliate you. Um, and sometimes teachers are, would do things like this. Um, we know, for example, Paul was ordered by Ananias, the high priest, when he was before the Jews, to be hit in the mouth, Right? Uh, later in the New Testament, Paul apparently refers perhaps to an insult like this when he rebukes the Corinthian church in a passage that is dripping with sarcasm. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 19 through 21, Paul talks about some of the ways that false apostles, as he refers to them, false teachers, had come in to Corinth and were teaching false doctrine And a part of what they were doing in asserting their authority was being abusive toward the Corinthians. And we'll see that Paul is rather astonished that they put up with it. Apparently, he doesn't see this as the same thing as being insulted for your faith. Uh, Apparently, he doesn't see a professing, albeit heretical, brother in Christ hitting you as something that ought to be tolerated in the body. (laughs) But at any rate, he says in 2 Corinthians 11, 19 through 21... For you put up with fools gladly, because these false teachers are fools. Since you yourselves are wise. Hear the sarcasm? You're so wise, you let fools teach you. That's how wise you are, right? He's intending an insult here in order to shame them, right? 
For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you in the face. Now, some people think, well, maybe he was just speaking metaphorically here. I don't think so. I think there are examples in the New Testament of religious leaders either striking or ordering someone to be struck in the face. I think he's speaking literally. He says, to our shame, I say that we are too weak for that. And he's being sarcastic again. Paul and his fellow teachers never treated him that way. I guess we're just too weak to be mean to you. Right? He says, but what, in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Now he's making a very powerful point here. Again, he's referring to the way in which they tolerated false teachers who were abusive to them and actually took advantage of the financial support that they offered, while all the while they were criticizing Paul for not taking financial support from them. Uh, But we get the point, in this case, uh, Christians were being actually hit by other Christians, and Paul didn't think that should be happening. Or other, let's say, professing Christians, because Paul calls them false apostles, false teachers. So, we're already beginning to see a sort of limitation of Jesus' principle. I'm not thinking that Paul expected them to turn the other cheek here. I think he expected them to get rid of these people, right? These false teachers. Purify the church. That's what the overall context is about there. Now, you're never going to be hit by an elder here, right? By one of the pastors here, thank God. And if that ever were to happen, I'm not sure I'd fault you if they hit them back. But you might have to beat me to it. Right, because I would want to protect you, right? Because that's not the same kind of situation that Jesus had in mind in Matthew five, and I don't think Paul thought it was, or else he'd have commended them for turning the other cheek, but he didn't. It's also quite possible that Jesus had these kinds of insults in mind, primarily in mind at least, uh, that. Paul was talking about, but I, but I don't think we can restrict his, his teaching simply to a calculated insult, right? I think we can take it a little bit more broadly in principle form, right? Um, I, I think perhaps we can broaden it to any kind of physical attack or abuse for his sake. His own example certainly indicates that this broader application might be in view. We read in John 18, verses 19 through 23, when Jesus is before the Sanhedrin and being judged, the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine, and Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. So his first response is, why are you asking about this? Everybody knows what I teach. I've been totally public with it. I've been teaching secretly in a quarter somewhere, right? He's, he's uh, questioning the sincerity of the question that's being asked to him, right? Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. This is a way of pointing out they didn't have proper witnesses. Um, indeed, they know what I said, and when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand. This isn't a backhanded slap. This is a whack right across the face with the palm of your hand. Saying, 
Do you answer the high priest like that? So he, he thought Jesus was being insolent. Now, Jesus wasn't being, what we'd say, highly cooperative with the intentions of Ananias here, uh, or with the high priest at that time. Uh, that's true. Jesus was resisting evil. He was showing what a mockery this was in the way he said things. What did they do? They hit him. And then Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Now, Jesus didn't hit him back. He didn't retaliate. He turned the other cheek. But he also resisted the evil with his words. He pointed out their hypocrisy. So this is another example, as we saw last week. Jesus constantly resisted evil. (laughs) But in situations in which he was mistreated, he turned the other cheek like this one. He didn't retaliate. The Apostle Paul behaved in a similar fashion in Philippi after having been wrongly beaten in prison by the officials there. Remember, uh, they were beaten pretty badly. Uh, he and Silas and thrown in prison. But they didn't escape. They ended up, by the grace of God, leading the Philippian jailer and his family to salvation and stayed put so that that guy wouldn't get in trouble if they fled. And we're told in Acts 16, 35, and when it was day, the magistrate sent the officers saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans. Now, it's interesting to me that Paul didn't say this before the beating. He could have asserted his Roman citizenship before he took this beating. But instead, he chose to suffer for Christ by taking the beating. He saw some kingdom purpose in that, apparently, and was willing to suffer the sufferings of Christ rather than get out of them when he could have. But he did assert his rights after he was falsely imprisoned and beaten. As a Roman citizen, you weren't allowed to do this. These magistrates could have been killed themselves for having mistreated him as a Roman citizen. Paul knew it. But he doesn't demand that either. He doesn't demand the full justice he could have demanded. We'll see what he does. They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now they want to put us out secretly? Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. They had made a big mistake here, and they knew it. Paul doesn't expect them to pay for it, though. There's a big turning of the other cheek here. Then they came and pleaded with him and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. What did Paul do? He, he asserted his rights, but only a little bit. 
just enough so that the whole community could see when these magistrates came and got them out that he and his partner hadn't really done anything wrong. He wanted that to be clear. He didn't mind suffering for Christ. He took that on. He didn't mind them getting away with what they did to him, right? He didn't demand justice on these magistrates. He could have. He didn't. He only asserted his rights just enough to make it clear that he hadn't done anything wrong. There's a lot of lessons we can learn from here, him here about how to apply what Jesus is teaching in turning the other cheek. Had he not turned the other cheek, he would have demanding these men be put to death, be put on trial. But he wasn't after vengeance. He was after a clarification, apparently, of what had actually happened in the minds of the people around. That's what it seems to me. So I'm using these examples to show you that there's a principle of turning the other cheek that is given in a particular kind of context, and we have to understand this in in that context. And when we look at what Jesus himself did and what Paul himself did, just turning the other cheek and leaving it at that isn't exactly what they did. Jesus still spoke about their hypocrisy. He didn't just put up with it, right? Even if he didn't physically retaliate. Of course, he could have called the angels of heaven and wiped them all out. And Paul, he didn't retaliate. Most of us would have wanted to see all those people hang, right? He didn't do that. Why? Why? He was seeking to be a good witness for Christ and to love those people around him, even these wicked magistrates, and he let them off the hook. And we, I hope, I hope after having done that, some Christians would have come and witnessed to them and we'll see them in heaven one day. That's my hope, right? I'm sure that was Paul's hope when he did this. So our Lord Jesus and Paul showed that they willingly accepted harsh treatment, not out of fear or timidity, Neither one of them were timid here. But because of their willingness to suffer injury for the glory of God and the good of others. And this has to be our mindset as well. I think that's what's driving our Lord in this passage in his teaching. It's what should drive us. In fact, this is what we've been called to. As Paul said to the Romans in Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. That is not an oft-quoted verse by Christians in America, is it? They like Christianity without the suffering part. And the last thing they want to do is not assert their rights all the time and to the fullest. Paul made the same point in his epistle to Philippians when he said in Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in his name, but also to suffer for his sake. This is why our Lord Jesus teaches that when we have an opportunity to suffer for his sake, We should take it without retaliating or seeking vengeance. So that's my beginning to, I hope, by treating the first of these illustrations, put these 
all of them in a larger scriptural context so that we can understand them better and we can wisely apply what's being taught here, understanding what a, the particular situation we're in at a particular time. Illustration number two is in verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak, or it could be translated robe, also. Now, in order to get Jesus' point here, we need to understand that the tunic was the primary garment worn next to the skin, and the cloak was an outer garment that offered more protection from the cold in particular. And at night, it was typically the thing, especially a poor person, would wrap up to sleep in, to stay warm at night. Um, And these were the typical dress of Jewish people in those days, particularly Jewish men. I think Daniel Doriani uh, has commented correctly, perhaps, that this seems like hyperbole, since it would be both indecent and unsafe to give up every garment. And for an example of hyperbole, also from Jesus, he, he cites the verses about plucking out your eye, right, if it, if it offend you, clearly hyperbole. And he thinks this is perhaps hyperbole as well. Um, that's possible. There's still an important point here. As for the outer garment, I think William Hendrickson is correct when he observed that this robe was considered so indispensable that when taken as a pledge, it had to be returned before sunset. Since it also served as a cover, often the poor man's only one, during sleep. One passage that demonstrates this fact is found in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 22, 26 and 27, the law says, If you ever take your neighbor's garment or his cloak, it's in the Septuagint, it's the same Greek word that's used by our Lord Jesus for the cloak here in our text. But it says, if you ever take your neighbor's garment, his outer cloak, as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for it is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. So if you don't do this, God's going to make sure he hears this guy's prayer against you, right? I think uh, D.A. Carson is on target then when he states that, quote, although under Mosaic law the outer cloak was an inalienable possession, Jesus' disciples, if sued for their tunics, an inner garment like our suit but worn next to the skin, far from seeking satisfaction, will gladly part with what they may legally keep. That, I think, is an important point he's drawing there about this. Jesus, I think, was basically saying that not only should we be willing to suffer for his sake, but also that we should be willing even to give give up our legal rights in order to demonstrate his love to someone else. We saw Paul did that. He was living out what Jesus is teaching here when he asserted his rights, but not fully. He didn't care about his rights under Roman law. He cared about what was the most loving thing to do for the people around him. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. You may have a right to demand that your cloak not be taken, but I say go ahead and give it to him. It's not your legal rights you care most about. It's that other person. Hard thing for Americans to hear. When our rights are what we care about most usually. 
The third illustration is in verse 41. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. That's important to understand what's going on here. Uh, who can compel you to walk a mile with them? Well, the answer to that is Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers that were at different times throughout Palestine. They uh, kept the peace in Palestine. Anytime they felt like it, they could force a civilian to carry their baggage, but only a mile. That was the rule. Um, That's why I think Carson is right when he says that Jesus here refers to the Roman practice of commandeering civilians to carry the luggage of the military personnel a prescribed distance, one Roman mile, and he puts that in quotes because it isn't exactly what our mile is, right? Many Jews had probably been required to do this kind of service who were hearing Jesus give this teaching. Or perhaps they had known someone who had been required to do this service at some time or other. And it would have been considered a humiliating experience for them. After all, they viewed the Romans as right enemies who had conquered their land unjustly. And in fact, it was their great hope that when the Messiah came, what he would do is get rid of the Romans. So to them, it would have been a humiliating thing. But rather than get angry and vengeful, Jesus says that a believer in such a circumstance should actually go to the extent of offering to go an extra mile. So if this Roman comes over and says, carry my bag a mile, I'll carry it too. No problem. Why? Well, they would have probably been used to the resentment they saw, right, in people. Well, they did it because they had to, but they probably didn't do it with joy, (laughs) right? Uh, Why would Jesus have a believer say, hey, no problem, I'll carry two miles? Because he wants these Romans to see something different in us. He wants them to see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. He wants them to see love for them in what we do. Even if their desires to mistreat us, I get the opportunity to take advantage of you and I'm going to do it. That's probably the average Roman's attitude. And the Christian would say, oh, you're not taking advantage of me. I'll carry two miles. I'm a nice guy. I like to help. What a difference Jesus expects for Christians, right? Uh, Why? Because we see it as an opportunity to share our Father's love, even with those who hate us. Illustration number four is in verse 42. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Now, Jesus knows full well that it is often a vengeful spirit which leads us to begrudge others the assistance we might otherwise be able to provide. Um, He also assumes here that there will be those who will seek to wickedly manipulate us and thus take advantage of us. Otherwise, why list such people together with people who are considered evil? Remember verse 39, what what he's illustrating here? We've got to remember what he's illustrating. I tell you not to resist an evil person. When Jesus says that, speaks of the person who asks of you, he's thinking of people that are evil in doing it, obviously, in the context. 
that are trying perhaps to take advantage of you. He says, give to the one who asks. And if somebody wants to borrow, don't turn them away. Jesus knows that people with all kinds of different motives try to take advantage of us. And he says, don't retaliate. Don't act with a hateful heart. It wouldn't help them. Another thing hard to hear, but, but we have to hear this in context as well. Before we think about that a little bit more, there's a similar teaching that Jesus gives, and he goes even further in Luke 6. He, he, there he says, not only do you lend to the one who wants to borrow something from you, but you do so not expecting anything in return. It's one thing to lend to somebody. It's another thing to do it without expecting it to be returned. Now, he, does, he doesn't say you don't accept payment if they want to return it. But if they don't, you don't necessarily go after them, right? Here's what he says. I'll begin in reading in Luke 6, verse 30. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Now, it's a similar context to what he's talking about here in Matthew chapter 5. So, for example, in the body of Christ, um, if you take something away from me, I might ask you to give it back, right? Because I'm holding you to a higher standard, right? Too much is given, much is required. If you claim to be a Christian, I'm going to expect you to act like it, and I should. And you should expect the same from me, that I shouldn't steal from you, right? And you should hold me accountable if I try to. So remember, Jesus has a particular kind of context in mind here, just as he did Matthew 5, I believe. And he says in Matthew 6, 31, And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Ah, not talking about brothers and sisters in the Lord. He's talking about unbelievers. He's talking about enemies here. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. He's saying you will get a return. It just won't be <laughs> maybe in this life, right? There's a reward you'll get. Therefore, be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. So here we have the teaching of Matthew 5.42 and an amplification of, of a way of the same principle in Luke 6. But does such teaching mean then that we should lean to just anyone who asks regardless of the specific, or lend, excuse, excuse me, to anyone who asks regardless of the specific circumstances? I've already indicated I don't think so. Um, there are other scriptural teachings, for example. Uh, Daniel Doriani, I think, is right when he writes that the command is unlimited, which prompts questions about potential abuses. To be sure, no one should give until his family lacks food. And there he cites 1 Timothy 5.8, which is, uh, if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. So already we see... It, the application of another scriptural principle that would limit how much we might lend or win. 
We can't do it to the detriment of taking care of our family, for example, because that's an evil thing. And he also says, and heedless giving can foster dependency. And that's true, and that's bad for people. But these points must not erase the call to generosity. The Lord is generous. His people are too. I think D.A. Carson also does a good job of wrestling with this. I'm going to quote him at some length. He's been very helpful to me. He wrote a, a book on the Sermon on the Mount. He's also written a very good commentary on Matthew, by the way. He writes this. Is it the Christian's responsibility to shell out to the professional beggar or to pay for the drug that is running, uh, ruining another man? Because that's what a lot of these beggars are using money for, drugs, alcohol. By saying, give to the one who asks you, does Jesus mean there are no circumstances where that injunction may not apply? I know a Cambridge research student whose tender conscience led him to an affirmative answer to that question and who went bankrupt as a result, quite literally doing without food himself while he supplied half a dozen men with the alcohol they would have been better off without. Because that's what they were using the money for that he was giving them, you see. Eventually, he was helped to see that his actions, though well-motivated, were helping neither the men nor himself and were honoring neither Jesus nor his teaching. Thus, no matter how much we wish to follow Jesus seriously, we discover sooner or later that seriously following Jesus entails hard thinking about what he said and what he did not say. We may not come to perfect unanimity on all points, but we must agree that absolutizing any text without due respect for the context and flow of the argument, which I've been focusing on a lot here, as you see, as well as for other things Jesus says elsewhere, is bound to lead to distortion and misrepresentation of what Jesus means. He's exactly right. That's why I've taken the time, hopefully, to show you that in the larger context, Jesus is talking about specific kinds of things. And so, for example, I don't think I was wrong some years ago when we had a couple uh, that was constantly having a hard time paying their bills, Kim and I were dealing with, and we would help them out, right? But as I got to know them, I noticed that they both smoked. They both smoked about a couple of packs a day. And so one time I, I figured out how many cartons of cigarettes a week they were going through, the two of them. And how much that was costing them. Because smoking is really expensive. And it was about as much they were spending on that as paying their power and the water bill. They were spending that much money smoking. And so I said, well, I'm not going to give you any more money for your power and your water bill. I'm going to do this instead. I'm going to say to you, quit smoking. You're choosing to smoke rather than pay your bills. And I'm not going to subsidize your habit. Quit smoking, and if you struggle, I'll help you. But first, you've got to do what you can do. Right? I don't think Jesus would have looked down on me for that. I was helping them out of love when I said that to them. As, as much as I know my own heart, at least, that was my intention. God knows. The point is that we have to take this in context but I want to say this, because I think Dan Doriani was on the right track. The Lord is generous, and his people are to be too. We don't want to be the kinds of people that say, well, you know, this is a limited context, and then go looking for reasons not to lend or give. 
What biblical excuse might I be able to find not to give or to lend? And that's our attitude. How can I get out of this and still stand being biblical? That's the wrong attitude. The attitude should be, I want to give or lend as much as I can, unless there's a clear reason biblically not to, because it's a bad idea. See the two different attitudes? I think Jesus wants us to have the latter latter attitude. Give whenever you can. Look for opportunities to do this. And I'll tell you this. Here's my attitude. I know I'm going to get taken sometime. I'd rather give to 100 people and get taken by five of them then for fear of being taken by five people, give to no one. God will sort it out. Vengeance is mine. I'll repay, saith the Lord. <laughs> Tolerate this, and God, you know, wait on the Lord, as Solomon says. He'll work it out in his own good time. I think we can't become those kind of people that are so fearful of being taken advantage of, we're paralyzed by it. And not doing good like we should. Do your best to be wise in helping people. Like I tried to be with that couple that smoked, right? Do your best to be wise, but know know this. You don't know everything, and sometimes you're going to get had. Well, you're getting had for the kingdom. And Jesus, I think, is indicating in his teaching here, that's not such a bad thing. Let God sort it out. This is the attitude. Jesus wants to have an attitude, I just want to give. I want to help whenever I can. And I want to do it out of love. I want to do it because I want to do good works that glorify, you know, so that they might see them and glorify my Father in heaven. Maybe they won't see it that way. But that's still my goal. And I leave the rest up to God. With that point, I think we've come to the end of our examination of this passage, and I hope you can see why I think that these examples fit quite well into the category of things which might be intended to heap coals of fire in the heads of those who mistreat us in some way for our witness for Christ, as Solomon had said. But to drive the point home even more, I think we'd do well in closing to recall once again the teaching of the Apostle Paul. I think in this passage he reflects Jesus' teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount, In Romans 12, verses 17 through 21, he says, Repay no one evil for evil. Sound like Jesus' principle in Matthew 5.39 to you? Sounds like it to me. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. He knows knows it's not always possible because when you speak the truth, people are going to hate you and there's not going to be peace, right? But you still speak the truth. Then he says, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. And here I think he means the wrath of God because he says, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Quoting Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32, 35. Then he says, therefore, and look what he quotes. The proverb we read at the beginning of this message. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Paul actually cited in conjunction with his allusion to our Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount the proverb that I cited at the beginning, and that's why I cited it at the beginning. 
I see it as applicable principally to what Jesus was teaching here, just as Paul did. In fact, I got the idea from him. So let's keep this in mind when we're seeking to live out what Jesus says here. What's our goal? Is heaping hot coals? We're, we're hoping that if, if the Spirit's working in them at all, when we do good to them, when they seek to do bad to us, that the Holy Spirit will work conviction in their hearts and lead them to repentance. And that God will use our love toward them as a means to draw them to himself. That's what motivates us as Christians. Not always seeing justice done, not constantly asserting our rights all the time, right? Not making sure they pay back the last penny of what we loaned them. What will best lead them to Christ? It's all we care about in the end insofar as we can see that. That's what's driving this. May God grant us the love, the patience, and I would say courage to follow these principles because it takes great courage. Let's pray. Holy Father, it is my hope that every believer here will today have joined in with me in wrestling with this passage kind of like Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord and didn't want to let go till he got a blessing. We, we kind of wrestled with this text today together, seeking to get the true understanding of it and how we should apply it so that we might be blessed and be a blessing to others, Lord. Give us wisdom in living this out. Give us love and grace in our hearts toward others. Give us the courage we need to be able to do what's right, even though we know at times we'll be belittled for it and looked down upon and be thought foolish. So what? It's a small price to pay. That's minimal suffering for the kingdom. And we gladly bear it for your sake. Help us to have that attitude, I pray. If there's anyone here who's not yet come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, it's our prayer that you would do for them what you've done for us of us who do know you. We pray that through your spirit you would convict them of their sins, enable them to see that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. He rose from the dead that they might have everlasting life, that if they will cease trusting in their own efforts, but trust instead in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone in him, you will give them the free gift of forgiveness and salvation and everlasting life. We pray they would embrace Christ today. We pray it for your glory, and we pray it in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As always, I thank you for your kind attention.